Thank you for listening to the Redemption Church podcast. For more information about Redemption Church, please visit redemptionokc.com. You can stay up to date on sermons by subscribing to our podcast on iTunes. Thanks again for listening. Heavenly Father, thank you that you made us. I thank you that you sustain us, that you keep this earth together so that we don't fly off as it spins around on its axis. Father, thank you that you gave us breath this morning. Thank you that you gave us a voice to sing. I thank you that you've given us a place to come together and worship and a church family to come and, uh, and, and to, to encourage one another. Father, I pray that you would open up your word to us today, that you would instruct us. And Father, as we talk about leadership in the church, God, would you grace us with leaders who love you and love one another well. Father, we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we are in 1 Timothy. If you've got your Bibles, I'd love for you to turn to the book of 1 Timothy. We're going to be in chapter 3 today. Um, this time of year, we tend to see these big birds flying around the air that look kind of like this. Um, any of you kids in here, what are those? Chickens? I don't think so. Uh, geese. They're geese. And uh, geese fly. I heard a guy say recently, he said, you know how the geese fly west? And I was like, I mean, they may turn west occasionally, but I think it's generally you're supposed to be north and south that it's trying to move, you know, for the cold and the warmth and all that kind of stuff. If you ask my daughter, she would say, if you look at these geese here, my, my daughter says that if she were in charge, there would be a little hump here and a little hump here, and they would fly in the shape of a heart. So just, just to share with you the kind of cuteness I get to deal with on a regular basis, and while that would be very cute, it might actually be as helpful for the, for the geese. Do you know geese fly in a V formation for a specific reason? The reason they fly that way is because there's an uplift that when birds are flying and they're flapping their wings, there's, there's an air that gives an uplift to the birds behind them, and they can actually increase the distance in which they fly by 71%. So their flying range increases by 71% by flying in formation. Now, one of the things they experience is if they drift out of formation, they immediately sense as they get out on their own, this kind of sense of drag and pull back as they encounter obstacles that they don't have when they're flying in the V formation. It's interesting too, as I was reading about some of this this week, just the resistance of flying alone, instinctively the geese begin to feel that and they move back into formation. Uh, They also, as they fly, are constantly honking to let everyone know to keep the pace up. And so if, if someone starts to let their pace drift a little bit, they begin to honk saying, hey, let's keep going, let's keep going. It's interesting too that the, the lead goose, uh, whenever he gets tired, drifts back into the formation, allows someone else to take the lead so that they are borne along by the other and can rest. It's fascinating too. If one of the geese becomes wounded or sick and has to drop out, two geese peel off and go and stay with that one until they're able to fly. And then they take off in formation again together to catch up and rejoin the others. Um, it's a cool picture to me of what the church ought to be and, and how we ought to function in the life of the church. One of the things I love about ministry is the relationships we get to build with one another. The sense of creativity and purpose and excitement and joy and sacrifice in, in, as friends on a mission working together towards a common cause. 
That's what church ought to be, that we've got a God-given destination and purpose. We've got a God-given formation that tells us how we're to operate. And when we're healthy, there should be a natural uplift within the life of the church, that as you're moving forward and, and seeking your goal, that there's a sense in which we're constantly lifting one another up and making it easier for us to travel. There's an old African proverb that says, if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go with others. The church is supposed to be something that allows us to move ahead. Now, as I looked at those geese, it's interesting. These geese do this thing instinctually. They were made to do this. They feel this. They know they're supposed to do it. They do it instinctively. The problem with humans is we outsmart ourselves. And when we're broken and we tend to get around it. And so what geese do by instinct, we better do by Bible. Because God's given us a book that tells us how it is we're to move forward. And if we're going to... Um, if we're going to succeed in this, we're going to need God's instruction. So friends, in a world that too often tries to go alone, we need God's word to, to, to guide us in the formation of the church. And so that's where we're going to be today and what we're going to look at. Look with me at 1 Timothy chapter 3. Uh, this week, we're going to start with Paul starts. He's going to take uh, really two different offices in the church, that of overseer, elder, that of deacon. And we're not going to talk a whole lot about roles, a whole lot about structures or governance or any of those kinds of things today. We're going to really just focus today on what Paul does. He gives us two lists that say, here's the character traits or qualifications. Here's kind of what the kind of guys and leaders in the church ought to look like. And we're going to begin to look at, and we're going to look really at just going through that list and looking at some of those different qualifications and the things that uh, Timothy or that Paul tells Timothy, this is what a leader ought to look like. Now, if you're a leader, you start to feel a little bit nervous, right? Anytime you start doing qualifications, it's like when you go in for a, a job interview and they give you the list of qualifications and you're like, well, good luck finding that guy, but I'm going to tell you I can do all that because I want the job, right? I mean, that's what you do in any, any interview setting. You look at this list, it can be intimidating. So let me just say this up front. We, we're not looking for perfect men. We need to be careful. Uh, scripture says, be, uh, do not rashly lay hands on, meaning do not appoint someone to a position of leadership too quickly. We need to be cautious. There's a reason why it gives us a list of here's the kinds of things that ought to be present in the life of a leader, but no one's perfect, right? Any of you want to claim that? Uh, if you are perfect, you need to leave uh, because uh, you're, gonna mess the, you're not going to fit in here. Like, you're, we're going to mess this thing up for you. But here's what happens. If, we, if we're not careful, we can create ridiculous pressure around our leaders with the sense that they need to be as good a leader as Abraham Lincoln, need to look like George Clooney, be as funny as Jim Gaffigan, be as entrepreneurial as Steve Jobs, be as calm as Mahatma Gandhi, and as pure as, as Mother Teresa, and as theological as John Calvin. And somehow you got to put all that in a package, and that's what a leader looks like, right? Well, that guy doesn't exist. Right, none of the, that person is not anywhere. So, what is it we need to do? We're not looking for superhuman spirituality and perfect morality, but we are looking for a mature, godly man, someone who does represent, model what a Christian ought to be, someone who does represent and model what we're trying to foster in the life of our church. And so, you're looking for someone who is a mature and godly man. It's interesting that the gospel frees us up to be honest and. Uh, you'll hear us say sometimes around here, what, what the gospel does is shows us that we're more sinful and broken than we ever realized, but we're also more loved and received in Christ than we've ever dreamed possible. And so we can walk in confidence there knowing, man, here's my struggles. Here's where I am imperfect. And one of the things that we do want to look for in a, a church leader is someone who's very much in touch with their own brokenness, but also very much in touch with the grace of Christ. 
The gift of someone who knows both of those things to lead well. And so you've got someone, hopefully, that repents often. Someone that says, I'm, I'm sorry often. Someone that's convicted of their own sin without, before they encounter consequences and is able to confess that, trust Christ, and continue to grow in, in holiness and godliness. And so someone that invites others into their struggles, but not someone that puts on a face or a mask or, or dresses something up and acts like there's something they're not that what's on the inside needs to match what's on the outside to the best of our ability. And that's where we want to, really where we want to look today. So let's look at these lists. Uh, let me read with you. And instead, uh, I'm just going to take off reading in verse one. We're going to read down through verse 13. This saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own house, household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into the snare of the devil." Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience, and let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they proved themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but so sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their households well, for those who serve as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. So as you look at what, this, uh, what, what these two lists uh, kind of lay out for us, there's a lot of similarity, there's a lot of overlap. And so a lot of the things that show up in the first list of overseers or elders, which those words are used interchangeably some, a lot of things that first list show up in the second list. So there's some overlap that, that's there, but there is some distinctiveness and difference there too. And we'll get into differences next week and roles and some of that generally just to lay the, kind of set the groundwork for you. Uh, the overseer elder is more those who guide and direct the church as a whole. They're, they're over uh, kind of the, the teaching of the church and the direction and doctrine of the church and they watch over those things. And so that's essential for that kind of a role. The deacons are more ministry servants, serve team leaders, those kinds of things that are executing the ministries of the church and helping to lead in those sorts of manners. And so uh, generally speaking, here what I'm, here's what I'm gonna do today is I wanna really break down the first list and just know that a lot of this applies to the second lesson. There's a lot of overlap there. But for the sake of time, I'm going to focus on the first one. Verse 1, notice what he says. If anyone aspires to the task of overseer, he desires a noble task. A noble task means it's work. A task is something that is work. It's something you have to do. It's, you're, you're, you're committing to a mission that is going to cost you something because it's going to be something that's very difficult to do. It's not something that's easily done. And so it's important to know that like most worthwhile things, leading, especially in, in a church, but in any context really, is going to be a, an awful lot of work. It's going to be costly. And so anything worthwhile is going to cost something. Notice the word it says desire. If anyone desires this, he desires a noble task. The word there is really to reach out and grab hold of something, to stretch oneself out in order to take hold of it. Meaning you, it's kind of this, this compulsion, this, this passionate compulsion to, to do something. 
and to, to move forward in, in a certain area. Now, sometimes this can be difficult because we kind of hear this thing in Christianity like, I thought we we're supposed to be a servant. We shouldn't desire leadership. We should desire to be the least of all and to, to wash people's feet, not to be a leader. And so sometimes we feel this tension in this. Let me just say this. There's a difference here between ambition and, and aspiration. There's a difference between, between having an ambition for something and aspiring for something as it talks about here. So let me share with you kind of the difference there. It's, ambition seeks to gain and wield power for the sake of self. Aspiration cares less about the position than having the right character to engage the right mission. See, if a person desires or hungers for leadership too much, it can actually be a warning sign. And yet there's something here that's good in that because it says that, that if a person aspires to leadership, it, they desire a good thing, right? So there's an affirmation of leading here. You know, when I went to seminary, it was interesting. You begin to get to know people and you get to know people, especially in the counseling department, by the way. But there were an awful lot of people that it felt like as you were there, thought you're here in the counseling program because you really need therapy. Like you're, you're trying to aspire to be a leader in this thing because you really are seeking help. And people that kind of were bringing their own brokenness and looking for leadership in order to cope with their own brokenness. And that wasn't necessarily bad, but those aren't necessarily the people that you want to lead the church. That they're trying to fill a void in their life by taking on a, a role of leadership. And really, you don't want someone operating that way. I think that's what he's talking about here is there's a healthy pursuit that's intentional, but patient, but not demanding. There could also be an unhealthy pursuit of leadership. I don't think it's what he's talking about here. But here he says it's a noble pursuit. It's something that's worthwhile. And so as we get into this pursuit, what does it look like? What are the, what are the kinds of things that we ought to see in the life of men who are gonna be leading in the church? Verse two, he says, they are to be above reproach. Um, that can be translated blameless. Any of you wanna to claim to be perfectly blameless in all things? Now, Christ sort of says that none of us are perfect, right? None of us are entirely blameless. So what's he talking about above reproach? He's just saying that there's no obvious disqualifying area of your life or your past. It's not possible to find a man without any faults, but we want people that are kind of weighed down with ordinary faults, laid down with ordinary sins and working through the ordinary sins in ordinary ways, not people that are so overwhelmed by some area of life that they can't function in a healthy way as a leader within the church. And so we are talking about observable result, uh, results. And this is kind of an umbrella. And at the end of this, he's going to say they, they kind of are above reproach inside, the, inside, but then they're above reproach, meaning no one from outside the church can, um, can find any fault in them either. So you kind of get this bracket. And this is the kind of general guideline that it sets and everything else falls out under this. That, man, there's nothing obvious that disqualifies this guy from leadership. So what does Paul do next? He says, okay, if we're going to really see if someone's above reproach, let's go talk to his wife and kids. Um, because they're going to know better than anyone else, right? They're going to know exactly what this guy is like. One guy said it this way. I've never had a wife come to me in all my years of ministry who said, yes, my husband is tender, gentle, kind, loving, giving, sweet, forgiving, considerate, hospitable, gentle, but I know he's really just faking it. Right? Y'all can laugh. Y'all got to lighten up a little bit. Right? I mean, how many of you can, can do all those things on a consistent basis with your wives, with your kids? You can love them well. You can be forgiving and gracious and say, I'm sorry. And you're considerate and you're thoughtful and you're always engaging them and you're servant-hearted and you do all those things, but you're faking it year after year, day after day, week after week, month after month. Like it's not, it's not the way that works, right? So Paul says, let's go look at this home. Let's look at this. He says, is he a husband of one wife? So that he, we're going to look at his relationship and what's there. 
Now, it's question, there's a question that shows up when you begin to look at this husband of one wife. That's really talking about. Is he talking about polygamy? Um, he's probably not in this culture, although that would definitely be an issue. Uh, it would be something that we would not be okay with. Um, probably, it's, so there's questions here. Is, is he ruling out or excluding unmarried men? That if you're not married, you have no reason to lead in the church. Well, Paul elsewhere says that it can actually be a really good thing. And so that's not what he's talking about. He says you can actually be freed up as a single man who's completely devoted to Christ to serve Christ more fully. And uh, guys who are married, uh, don't say the amen out loud. But he says that if we're married, we're actually troubled and divided in some ways because we've got all these other responsibilities to manage, right? And so there's nothing wrong with someone who's single leading in the church. That's not what he's talking about. So is he prohibiting remarriage after the death of a spouse? Now we see elsewhere in scripture that someone who, uh, who has lost a spouse can remarry and there's no pressure on that. So that's not what he's talking about. I mean, what is, what is really the point of what he's getting at? He's, he's really talking much more about faithfulness and character. He's not so much talking about quantity. That's not the emphasis here. It's about the quality of the relationship. Is he, as, as some people have said, a one-woman man? A man who is married to one woman and faithful and loving and caring and devoted to her. That's the focus and the emphasis here. Now, one of the questions that, shows, that, that people often ask is, can someone who's been divorced be an elder? Um, there's some differences of opinion there. I'll tell you what, uh, what, what I think this really is, is emphasizing here is, can this guy be faithfully demoted, devoted to this one woman in a relationship that's reserved for her where he's not flirting and flitting about, but he's committed to that one woman um, for, for the rest of his life? That's what we're talking about here. So can a man be divorced? I, I would say yes. I would say that there's an accommodation in the brokenness of our world, that there would be a preference given to those who have only been married once, but in God's restoration and God's grace and God's ability to, uh, to restore someone, I think there is a possibility that someone could, although we would tend to give preference to someone who has not been through that. But here's what I do when, I, when someone comes and asks me about that. I say, tell me your story. I want to know. How have you walked through life? How have you walked through your brokenness? Who have you brought into the mix of that? Who have you walked? But there are people who have, who have had someone that has abandoned them, people that have been in different scenarios, that at times I think God's grace um, can actually work through that in the midst of that. So that, uh, that's my personal opinion on how to understand that text and really what it is. But I think the thing that is obvious, and the thing we know for absolutely sure is we're talking about a one-woman man, a guy who's completely committed to this one woman. Um, and not, not going anywhere, not looking outside of that. You know, it's interesting. Someone was telling a story about uh, Winston Churchill, and I love Winston Churchill because the dude was just a witty guy. And someone asked him in the middle of this dinner party, and they went around the table, and they were talking about it at this banquet, and they said, and all these dignities were asked, and said, if you could not be who you are, who would you like to be? And everyone kind of went around and gave their answer, and they're all waiting around for Winston Churchill's answer because they knew he would have something good to say. And when it came around to him, and they asked him, well, who would you want to be if you couldn't be yourself? He said, if I could not be who I am, I would most like to be. And he said, here he paused, and he reached over, and he took his wife's hand and lifted it up, and he said, Lady Churchill's second husband. Um, that's a smart dude, right? <laughs> you hear this response he got from all your wives? Like there's a guy that knew what it looked like to affirm his devotion to his wife. That's what we're talking about. We're talking about someone who says, man, I love this woman and this is, all, this is the only one I ever want. And so someone who's devoted and loving and caring for his wife. So that's, that's the, uh, the qualification there. The next one he says is sober-minded. Now he's gonna get to drunkenness and some of that a little bit later. This could actually refer to that, but sober-minded probably means more like clear-headed. 
that he's not filled with muddled thinking. It's not dealing so much with substance abuse. But here he's saying this is someone who doesn't get spun out of control by everything that comes his way. And in some ways, this is someone who's not a drama king. Someone who, who doesn't just stir the pot because it is. You ever been around someone that when you're working with them, it just feels like everything's hard all the time? And you just, no matter what it is you're dealing with, it just feels like, man, this should not be this stinking hard to get this thing done. Because there's always drama. There's always a problem. Good's never good enough. There's always, it's, it's never, nothing ever measures up. And so there's always this sense in which they're spinning out in a different, in, in one way or another. Well, if it's, you know, the, someone who's not so reminded, someone who kind of goes, man, if it's going to be that way, then I'll just leave. And so it's, it's either everything's got to be completely perfect or they're just going to bail. They don't want to be a part of something. So this is, this is someone who can deal with life's brokenness and keep things in perspective. This can deal with the faults of others and keep things in perspective and not get spun out of control about everything that happens. And next is uh, self-controlled. The ability to navigate a sense of self-control over one's impulses, emotions, and behaviors. And when we're mature, we're self-controlled, right? How many of you have infants that are self-controlled? Uh, zero. Uh, infants are mama controlled. That's the way that works. Infants do something and mama says no. And infants do something else and mama goes no. If it's something else, you go no. And, and so you have to make sure that they're not putting their hand in the, in, in the candle, that they're not running in the road, they're not climbing in the oven, they're not eating the dog food. Actually, that's probably okay every now and then. But the, you have to make sure that everything happens okay because you're in control of them. They don't have self-control. And then as they start to grow up, you hope, at least, they start to take some responsibility for themselves. And so you're able to start to give some instruction and say, hey, I need you to do these chores. And then you give a consequence. If you don't do this chore, this will be the consequence. And then there's negative consequences for other things. If you look at that site, you're going to lose your phone. If you don't get home on time, you're going to lose your car. And you begin to provide these external pressures on them to teach them what it's like to be self-controlled. And so part of parenting is taking someone from infancy to toddlership to, to young, uh, young man to teenager, and you're giving them more independence. You're giving them more control, trusting that they're going to be self-controlled. The goal is that when they go off to college or when they go off to career, that they're going to be able to manage their own lives. And independently, apart from you just putting pressure on them, they're going to have an internal motivation to do the right things, right? Parents, isn't that what you want? So it talks about being self-controlled. What we're talking about is just mature people who are self-controlled men. Galatians 5, it's one of the fruit of the spirits. Fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Shows up in there. It's one of the things that God works in us. Next is respectable. We're called to be honorable, dignified in the way in which we operate. And not that we walk around carrying ourselves with some kind of air and putting on airs, like we're not all trying to pull Downton Abbey off in a way we present ourselves. That's not what this is talking about. But it's just talking about people that you look at him and go, wow, I kind of like that guy. I think it'd be kind of cool if I got to know him. I think I'd probably like him. That there's just something respectable about the person that you think, man, there's, there's something that's admirable there. There's nothing that I look at and go, ooh, just kind of going to steer away from that guy because I'm not sure what's really going on. But there's a respectable sense in which they carry themselves. Next is hospitable. Hospitable literally means loving of strangers. It means that they love people in general. And they may even like them. 
Like it's people that they, they care about those that are around them. And so they're welcome to sacrifice and bring them in. They're welcome to initiate. In that culture, hospitality was a huge thing. It meant that when someone came to a town, really oftentimes to go to what we would call as a hotel, were really more like brothels. So it was not a safe place, not a good place. So they would always invite someone who was an out-of-towner to come live in their house with them while they were there. And it was just considered common courtesy that you would invite people in. We don't have that problem. We don't necessarily do that kind of a thing. But the question here is, and what is this person's engagement with those around them in the world, those that they don't know? Do they have a natural love for other people? I remember a guy hiring a pastor one time, and later they came back around and said, you know, I don't ever want to hire a pastor again who doesn't just love people. And it seems simple enough to understand that, but sometimes it's harder to detect unless you've watched over time to see that they genuinely care about those around them and those that they, that they engage, and they have a joy in it. Um, it's interesting to, to think about that as, as a qualification for leadership in the church. I mean, does this guy have a natural joy and affection for people and to love them? There's a highly relational component to that. Uh, it's not just, can this guy read a spreadsheet and make a statement about, you know, kind of where the numbers fall out, but does this guy have an affection and a love for people? Uh, so how's hospitable? It's interesting what follows hospitality uh, in, in this list. And the very next thing is what? Is he able to teach? So there it kind of flips. You, you, we tend to sometimes think about these things as, as opposites, but it's interesting to me that there's a personal warmth connected with a doctrinal wisdom. So there's hospitality towards people and then a doctrinal or faith-based kind of belief in ability to handle the truth. And those two go hand in hand. He puts them kind of here. So some people are are really good at breaking down some theology, uh, but they're just socially hard to get along with. Then there's other people that are socially super engaging, but they don't have a hunger and a desire for the truth. And this says those need to go together. It's interesting, able to teach is the only real ministry skill that's in this list. And so this list focuses almost entirely on a person's character, on their spiritual life. This is the one task that's sort of there that focuses more on a skill. It's also the one thing that separates elders, overseers from deacons. So you don't see anything like this in deacons, but in elders, overseers, there has to be some ability to teach. Now here's, when we think of teaching, we often time based on our experience, we see it a certain way, right? So you think about what a teacher is. Let me just say, this is not talking about their their calling or gifting uh, to be on stage and, 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 and not really about their stage presence and their charisma. He's not saying, can this person give a punchy TED talk and wear a thousand dollar sneakers? Like that's, that's not, what, not what he's talking about in terms of being able to teach. He's talking about someone who has the ability to explain the scriptures and apply it to people's lives and their situations. Someone who knows the gospel who knows the truth and knows the word and can take that and apply it to people in in their individual lives and apply it to church situations, apply it to decisions that need to be made. Titus 1 is another place where it gives qualifications for elders and it says it this way, that an elder or an overseer must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, meaning that which was handed down, God's revealed word of the gospel and what's been given to us, he has to hold firm to it in the way in which it was given so that he may be able to give instruction and sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Paul in 1 Timothy 1 was dealing with what? False teachers. These false teachers that had risen and he had to go and say, do not allow anyone to teach any false doctrine. An elder has to be able to cut the cloth in the same way. 
do not allow anyone to teach a false doctrine and know what that is. And so uh, it's someone who sometimes has to discipline wayward saints, someone who offers guidance to the church, guidance to, to individuals, and they oversee the church's teaching and, and guard the doctrine of the church. So that is part of what uh, the responsibility here is. So then you get to verse four. Verse four, he says, not a drunkard. Um, not a drunkard means not a drunkard. Like it's the, the, this one's not really difficult to understand what it means. Uh, and apparently this was a problem there. First Corinthians, Paul had a church who they were actually getting drunk on communion wine. Um, I, d- I don't think we've had that here, but, uh, but you had that even in the Old Testament or in the New Testament, these churches that were spinning out of control in some of these areas. He's talking about over-dependence on substances. I don't think it's just wine. Like if you're like not a wine guy, but you're pounding you know, a, a case of beer every night, that, that still doesn't work here. Like just because it's beer, not wine, doesn't work. But, you know, it's not weed, it's not prescription pills, it's not, you're not over-dependent upon any substance which you're trying to use. That doesn't mean you can't have a drink. It's interesting, Paul later will tell Timothy, hey, Timothy, go, go take a little wine for your stomach. You need a little, kind of for medicinal purposes, Paul will actually instruct Timothy to go take a little wine. So it's not saying you can't have a drink. It's just saying don't have to have a drink. Don't regularly overdrink. Don't be a slave to drink. Don't be a drunkard. Um, going with that sometimes, some people think the very next one, it says not violent or pugnacious. Uh, some people think they put those together because often they go together. That oftentimes when someone's getting drunk, they become violent or pugnacious. And, um, not necessarily linked, but some people think there's a connection there. So the next one, don't be violent or pugnacious, means bullying, verbal abuse, pushing, shoving. Don't allow your emotions to derail your interactions with others. Don't allow it to go overboard. You know, it's fascinating. I once uh, was working at a church and um, after service, we were kind of finishing up and I was talking with people and I had a, a pastor's wife come running up to me and says, hurry, 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 I need you. I need your help. Come with me. And there, he, he's my, you know, my husband's gonna get arrested. He's getting arrested. And I'm just like, well, okay. So we ran out the door. We get there. Sure enough, a uh, part-time employee of ours at the church is up against a wall, boom with a cop right behind him. And I go and wonder, man, what's going on? And I talk to the cop and the cop looks at me and honestly says, he goes, if this were any place else and he was anyone else, he would be in my car right now. And I said, man, what happened? What happened was he blew his top about something that happened in the church. And he was so angry, he went storming across the street. And the, the policeman whom we paid to get people across the street safely whistled and told him, I'm sorry, sir, you need to come to the crosswalk. And he said, I don't have time and kept going across the street. And the policeman whistled again and said, sir, I need you to stop and come to the crosswalk. And he refused and ran across the street, at which point the cop went and got him and put him against a wall. Um, that's the definition of pugnacious and problem. Uh, this, this dude had some problems. Let me tell you the good end of the story. Through that event, we were actually, he, he, he lost his job. But we were actually able to begin to, some counseling with he and his wife. There was a process going through this. Found out there were a lot of other issues going on. Went through recovery, went through a whole process of us caring for him, and later was restored to a place of real health. But it, that event actually surfaced some things where this guy needed to be cared for in a way where he learned to operate in some different ways, where he wasn't a slave to his emotions in an unhealthy way. But it also meant uh, the dude needed a timeout. Like he didn't need to be in the starting lineup acting that way. He needed to go off for a little while until he figured out how he needed to operate. The other side of that says, don't be pugnacious, but be gentle. Uh, in in this, uh, 
this phrase gentle or this word is spoken oftentimes of God. It's someone who's slow to anger. He's forbearing injustice, meaning that God sometimes could look down on the world and see the way in which you're operating and he could just execute justice and he could just lash out and take something out, but he's slow. He's forbearing. He absorbs the things that happen and doesn't act out on those things. And so there's a balance here between honesty and being gentle and tolerant and slow to execute someone for the things they've done that what is wrong. So there's a gentleness to that. And they easily overlook the failures of others. So you can, you can appreciate that in a leader, right? Someone who easily overlooks the faults in others, someone who's flexible, someone who's gracious towards those who maybe are struggling or having a hard time. That's the, the idea here. It says not quarrelsome, uncontentious. Now I'm gonna completely abuse the biblical language here. Uh, for the sake of a good illustration, but the actual word here, if you look at it, is spelled A-M-A-C-H-O, ah, macho, meaning it's not macho. That, that's the way you might think of this. Not quarrelsome means doesn't have some kind of false kind of idea of what masculinity looks like to be ruled by others and uh, someone who's hard and unbending and tough. Uh, that's, that's not a godly trait. And so this is someone who's not constantly finding faults in others or their way of doing things. Someone who's not constantly pointing out where everyone else has fallen short because they're the tough guy that needs to do that. You have people say that like, you know, I'm just telling you what you need to hear. And it's like, yeah, but you're just kind of being a jerk, right? And so what this is saying is don't be a jerk even when you know someone maybe didn't do things the right way. Be gentle, be gracious, be loving. Don't be quarrelsome. Uh, What happens if you have a quarrelsome leader who comes and brings an idea to a table and everyone in the room doesn't agree with them? Uh, that becomes really tense really quickly, doesn't it? And so imagine in, in leadership, if you've got someone who says, hey, I've got an idea, this is what I think happens. And guys go, man, there's a good root in there, but let's change this and work this over here. And he goes, no, it has to be this way or I'm out. Well, that's gonna be a problem. That group's never gonna get anywhere. And it's also gonna just be miserable to actually try to function on that team. Any of you like team projects? My boys are in high school and they're their teachers are giving them lots of team group projects right now. And they're getting to learn that sometimes groups function more slowly than you can on your own, but you can get a good result in doing it. But you want to be the, the kind of guy who can express his viewpoint without, uh, without demanding his way, who can, who can learn to flex with others and not be argumentative about those things. But maybe when someone disagrees, isn't overly offended doesn't feel personally rejected every time uh, people don't agree with everything they say. So we need to be those who are, uh, one guy said that this word peaceful, peaceful or, or, or the kind of amacho means he's a not fighter, meaning he chooses not to fight over everything that he could fight over, but, uh, but oftentimes is flexible. Next, he says, lover of money. It's not a statement about how much money he has, but it's a statement of how much of his heart his money has. How much his heart is wrapped around his money is really what it talks about. Notice it says not a lover of money. Now here's the problem in church. Sometimes we, we overlook, uh, there's certain sins that we want to elevate and say, well, these are the biggies, but there's other ones we ignore. Oz Guinness said it this way, if a man is drunk on wine, you'll throw him out. If he's drunk on money, you'll make him a deacon, right? And so oftentimes that's the way the church has historically functioned. But here you see there's a, there's a qualification here of not being a lover of money, meaning not overly motivated, motivated by finances and gain, not greedy, not using his position for other things. It's interesting, worry can be a love of money, right? It's not just someone who overspends, but it can actually be someone who has a lack 
that they're, they're constantly worried about money and just thought, and, and their life is kind of motivated by that. Um, this is people who are able to keep things in perspective. And so if someone has their money in perspective and they're not a lover of money, but they're a lover of God, part of what that means is they tend to be generous. They tend to be cheerful givers. They tend to be able to give stuff away without it freaking them out. Um, but their values have shifted from money to, to God and to his people. And so they're naturally generous and they're motivated by spiritual things. Verse four, he must manage his household well. And generally, this means that uh, someone's gonna be over the house. He's gonna handle his family well. And says, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. And that in our culture sounds like a really negative thing to think about your kids being submissive because one, you're supposed to be your kid's best friend. You're supposed to be your kid's biggest cheerleader. You're supposed to be your kid's enabler. You're supposed to be the one who makes sure that your kid's life is perfect and easy. Uh, maybe that's not a healthy way, but I think that's the way we operate a lot of times in our culture. Well, here it's talking about keeping your kids in line. It doesn't mean, it means that their kids are under, are, are under control. One guy said, it just means your kids are street legal. Like you don't have to lock them up. You know, they're, they're, not, they're not out of control here. It probably refers to the father's dignity and the way in which he parents. Now, here's what I realize. All of us need a lot of grace when it comes to parenting. Any of your parents agree with me? Yes. Like all of us need an awful lot of grace when it comes to parenting. I don't know of any place where we feel more vulnerable personally than in our marriage and in our parenting where you really lean in and you really press in and it just starts to go, man, I don't feel really cocky here right now. Like, I don't feel like I can be really brash about my excellence in all these areas. I, we all begin to feel a little timid. No one's kids are perfectly behaved all the time, uh, mostly because they're like the parents. They're sinners, they're broken people. And you start to see those things and, and you see those things in your kids and you're like, oh man, that's gonna hurt someday, Right? Because like that looks like me, and I know what that was like. I know when God had to wean me off of that, how painful it was and still is. And I just, you start to see those things develop. And so your kids are not going to be perfect. That's not what he's, what he's talking about here. In fact, if you show me a house where kids never misbehave, I'll be more on alert about that house. Because it means someone has so put that house under his thumb that everyone's scared to breathe. They're scared to operate. And that's actually, to me, a greater sign of worry and concern. Do you want to go to a church that's so under control, that someone's got you so under his thumb that everyone's afraid to breathe? No, you don't want a leader that operates that way. So you don't want a leader that operates his home that way. You want to be a place of joy, a place of life, a place of blessing, a place of goodness, a place of grace and forgiveness and all these things. How many of us need the grace of God? Well, our kids are going to too. And so we want to be a place that operates out of grace. So what he's talking about here, though, it's interesting, he goes to the home. You know, your private behavior determines ultimately your public behavior is part of what he's saying. If you can't handle this little world well, then you're not going to handle trying to lead this world very well because your character is going to bleed over in both. Whatever you are in your, your micro home or your little home is what you're going to be in your church home, in your church family. You're going to operate in a similar way. And so he, he, in some ways, man, this really validates and affirms the dignity of your home life. If you ever feel like, man, I'm not sure it's worth it or I know it's costly or I'm exhausted and I'm worn out, part of what he's saying is there's a dignity and an honor to managing your house well, enough that it's a value for them. Verse six, he must not be a recent convert. This is really dealing with maturity. 
And to be honest, sometimes I'd rather be around, with, be around recent converts than old converts. Uh, because recent converts, there's a, there's a raw edge to them. There's oftentimes this kind of earthiness. There's this kind of uh, honesty about, man, I don't know what that says. And someone will be in Bible study and they'll say something and be like, and I never heard that before. Tell me what that means. And half the other group doesn't really know what it means either. But they're, they've been in church long enough to know you're not supposed to acknowledge that. And so they just fake it, right? And so sometimes I'd rather be around guys that are kind of raw and new and they're hungry and they know the grace of God and they know they need it and they're excited about it and they want to talk about it. But that doesn't mean we should invite those people to leave the church right away, right? Because there's a maturing process that has to happen. And uh, Paul gives us some of the dangers that are there. When he says not a recent convert, here's what I think he's getting at. They haven't realized how sinful they are yet and how much they need the grace of God yet. So their failures um, haven't brought them a sense of humility yet. And life's hardship and pain has not brought them a sense of compassion yet because they haven't, just haven't had enough time. One guy said they haven't fermented in the grace of God enough, long enough yet. So they're not yet ready. Um, it's interesting when you think about not a recent convert, it means if you had enough time to wait and watch this person go through calendar cycles to see how they respond to different situations. How are they gonna handle things when conflict comes away? How do they handle disappointment? How do they handle uh, spiritual dry spells? How do they handle betrayal? How do they resolve differences? How do they flex when things don't go their way? How do they bounce back after setbacks in life? All these things take time for us to watch and time for those things to mature. And so I think that's what he's getting at. It's interesting, experience plus emotional health always produces both humility and conviction. That there's a humility to the way someone operates over time if they're mature, because they realize that they've not done it all perfectly. But there's also a conviction about the consequences of action that give them a rootedness and a strength to the way they operate. They needed to have tasted their own struggles long enough to say like Paul did, I'm the chief of sinners, right? So they don't think that it's all just easy and moving forward, but there's a lot of grace that comes for that and they know how to operate. One of the things that happens with recent converts a lot of times is they have kind of this pure, purest thinking of um, everything's really black and white. And there is a lot in scripture that's black and white, but sometimes they just see everything and it's like, boom, boom, boom. And they're making rash judgments and quick thoughts and all these things and situations. And there needs to be a tenderness and a grace that's steeped over time and fermented um, so that they can lead well in different situations. They need to know that they're, that they're saved by grace. They, they need to understand deeply the grace of God and how much they need it before they can lead others and offer the same grace to them in the way they, in which they lead. And that's an important thing. Um, notice that lastly, he says, he must be well thought of by outsiders. Well thought of kind of means this, it's this idea of he's a beautiful witness to others. That others look at him and go, there's something about that that's appealing. There's something attractive about this person and about um, the way God is at work in their life. If you went and talked to their neighbor, um, what would they say? If they went and talked to your employees, to your coworkers, what would they say? To those that are outside the church, when they look at this person, they may not agree with your beliefs, but is there some kind of a winsomeness and attractiveness to your person that they're interested in, that they're well thought, out of, well thought of? Ultimately, um, leaders are called to do what? To love God and advance the mission of the church by loving people in the church and outside the church. And so in order to do that, you need a reputation that, um, outside the church that has a good rapport because these are people who publicly are um, 
are going to be looked at as leaders of the church. So there's a, a sense in which people, some people may not, uh, the only Christ some people see may be you. They, they may see Christ in you before they are willing to come in and learn about Christ. And so they need to see some authenticity there. Let me end with this. Does that list seem overwhelming? Does it feel a little intimidating at times? Does it feel a little bit um, like maybe you're not like this? Maybe you're not. Here's what I want to encourage you with today. You don't need to clean yourself up by trying harder. You don't need to pull yourself up by your bootstraps. You don't need to become more religious. You don't need to become um, just more kind of more driven in the area of your morality and your virtue. You need to die and be born again. You need new life. You need to know the grace of Christ that saves you. You need to know you can't do it on your own. You need to know that there is a God who loves you and who sent his son to die for you. But grace trains us to be something new. Grace raises a new man in a new community. And that's what the church really is and what we're called to be and what we're called to be about. So let me pray for us. Father, would you raise up for us men like these? Would you guard us that we may always have men like these? Father, for those of us in the church, would we honor what your word says? May we, may we listen well to your spirit that you might stir in us by your grace, love and good deeds. Father, would you raise up owners of the ministry who bear the weight of your people as compassionate men, faithful men, honorable men, sacrificial men, trustworthy men, men marked by love, grace, truth, the men whose lives have been ordered by you and by your word. Father, we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.